If you join me in Bible study tonight, we will resume our study of the book of Romans. We are in chapter 5. Chapters 1 through 5 are about justification. How do we get saved? From chapter 6 on, it's about sanctification. Okay, we've gotten saved by faith. Now what? But we haven't finished chapter 5 yet. So... Let me get my notes in order here, and we'll turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We stopped in the middle of a sentence last week. Well, that happens sometimes. The brain cannot absorb more than the derriere can withstand. So if we turn to Romans chapter 5, we'll pick up in verse 4. It says, and, because we're in the middle of a sentence. So verse 3 began, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. We glory in tribulations. Tribulations means we're going to have problems in this world. People are going to persecute us. They're going to mock us. They're going to ridicule us. Sometimes they even do worse things than that to us. They certainly aren't going to like it if you preach the word of God. Because here in the last days, we learned in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that people have itching ears. And they want to be told that whatever they are, whatever they do is right and good and honorable in the sight of the Lord. And it's simply not so. But we will have tribulations. There are denominations out there that build their doctrine around the fact that if you're a true believer, you can't get sick. You can't get cancer. You can't get hurt. You can't fall down and scrape your knee. God won't allow it. That's not what the scripture's about. Will we eventually, if we're faithful to God, have bodies that will not suffer injury, will not suffer disease? Yes, but that's not in this world. There's actually people out there that think when they nailed the nails into Messiah's wrists, it didn't hurt. Does anybody believe that? No. No. We glory in tribulations. Why would we glory in tribulation? Because if we're suffering tribulation for the name of God, it just goes to testify to the fact that we're doing right in the sight of God. And Satan doesn't like it. But it says, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance. Uh, We didn't do this last time, but let's do it. Let's turn over to John. Chapter 15. I was raised in a denomination that taught once saved, always saved. Once you walk down that aisle, repeat after the pastor, you can go do whatever you want. Nearby churches sold drugs out of the churches. They run prostitutes out of the churches. They thought it was all just fine. Does the Bible support any of that? It does not. Look at John chapter 15. Every Shabbat we open at the Oneg and refer to Messiah being the true vine. That's from John chapter 15. Look at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. What does a vine dresser do? Takes care of the branches. He trims off the portions that are not producing and throws them into the fire so that those that are producing fruit can produce more fruit. Says every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That is, he cuts off and throws into the fire. 
Well, these are branches that were in him. They were in him. They were producing fruit, and they stopped because they lacked perseverance. They turned away from their faith. It was like the parable that Messiah taught about those who hear the gospel, and they get all excited, and the, and the fruit grows up immediately and then dies as soon as persecution and tribulations begin because they have no depth. Verse 2 goes on to say, And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. What's the word abide mean? Stay put, stay with me. Do not turn away. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. Give me that another way. He who truly knows me and I know him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, you cannot not abide if you never abided in the first place. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. How many times have you seen that word abide so far in this chapter? A lot. Do you think he really means we're to abide in him? Absolutely. So let's go back to Romans 5 and pick up with verse 4. And perseverance. What does perseverance provide? Character. And character provides hope. But if you don't have perseverance, you don't get character or hope. And what hope are we talking about? Hope. The hope of eternal life, right? So we must have perseverance. Let's look at Romans chapter 2, verse 7, and talk about perseverance. Paul talks about it a lot. Romans 2, verse 7. We must start in verse 5, actually, to get the full context. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, and Daniel said last week that word impenitent means unrepentant. You are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. What do we call that day? The day of the Lord. So in the day of the Lord, if you have an unrepentant heart what are you storing up for yourself wrath not joy the righteous judgment of God says in verse 6 who will render to each one according to his deeds I know we've run that scenario many times in the past but it says all the way through Revelation 22 that we're given our rewards based upon our works you've got to have the faith the faith is the foundation but you build upon the foundation and that's what gets judged for your works, what you've done after you get saved. Before you got saved, I'm willing to bet you were as big a sinner as me. Maybe not as big, but okay. 
Verse 7, eternal life to those who by patient continuance, that's another term for perseverance. It's the same word. They just translate it differently. So eternal life to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. So what truth are we talking about here? Truth of Torah, Psalm 119, verse 142. Indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek or the Gentile. Let's go to Romans 15, verse 4. Romans 15, verse 4. Again, Paul talks about perseverance a lot. For whatever things were written before, before what? Before what he's writing now. What's written in the Old Testament, right? Why was it written? So they could sit on a bookshelf and get dusty? No. It was written for our learning, our instruction, that we might learn from it. When Israel was close to God, how did God bless them? Crops came in, they were blessed beyond measure, weren't they? And when they turned away from God, then everything collapsed all around them. And then they repented and they got blessed and they turned away. They got cursed and they repented and got blessed. Which is better? Blessing is better than judgment. So let's learn it. Refer learning that we through the patience, that word patience is the same word perseverance. They just translated it differently here. Through the perseverance and comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. At what point do the scriptures become irrelevant? They never will. What word of God will ever fail? None. What word of God will he ever change and say, I didn't mean that. I meant all blondes will be saved. Boy, don't we hate that thought, except for you. Okay. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Does drugstore count? <laughs> Ain't going there, buddy. I would tell my joke about artificial intelligence, but there are blondes here, so I better not. <laughs> 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. Now I'm going to get all kinds of emails. So oh, I like emails. Okay. 2 Thessalonians 1, 4. So we're going to start in 3 to get the context. But again, Paul is writing about perseverance. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Where was that word perseverance? The word patience again. Patience, perseverance. What's that old silly old expression? I want patience and I want it now. Well, tribulation helps us build patience. Knowing that God will deliver us in his time. Will God sound that trumpet and call us all home soon? 
Yes. But in his time, if it was in my time, we'd have been gone long ago. But it's all in God's time. 2 Thessalonians 3, 5. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience or perseverance of Messiah. Wait for him. Hebrews chapter 10. Also written by Paul, I believe. Some people would disagree. But you know what? There's very little I could ever say that there would be somebody that would disagree with it. Hebrews 10.36 For you have need of endurance. Uh-oh. What's another word for endurance? Perseverance. Perseverance. So that. Here's why endurance, perseverance is so important. Patience. So that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. If you were to graft that out, graft those words out, what you're going to see is that perseverance is staying true to our faith, not giving up our faith, not turning away just because the world gets tough. Do people laugh at you when you share your faith? So what? Does that mean we stop sharing it? No. We hang in there. After you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. But what do these other verses say? What if you turn away? What if you say, it's too hard, I can't do it, I don't want to do it? My soul has no pleasure in him. We are not of those who draw back to perdition. Is perdition a good thing? No, another term for perdition is the lake of fire. So do not give up your faith ever. Not ever. Hebrews 12.1 Therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance. What's another word for endurance? Perseverance. The race that is set before us. Looking unto Yeshua, the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What joy was set before him that he would endure the cross? Sit the right hand of God the Father. I don't think that was the joy it was. Being many people to salvation to glory. I'm going to put people on mute unless somebody's got a question out there. I think somebody just came off mute. Okay. James chapter 5, the last one here on this topic. James comes right after Hebrews. James 
James chapter 5, verse 11. Wayne, why are you hitting this so hard? Do you ever read the, the Barna reports that come out periodically? More and more people are turning away from the Lord, rejecting the Lord every day. Pastors are leaving the pulpit because they don't believe in God anymore. People have just turned away. They've lost faith. James 5.11, we're too close. 5.11, indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. That word end there is telos. Was Job ended by the Lord? No. God restored to Job all that had been lost. So let's go back to Romans chapter 5. And remember that the, the series of verbs and words here in verse 3. Tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. It says in verse 5, now hope does not disappoint. That is, if you have kept your faith in God, God will not let you down. The only way you, you do not finish the race is if you drop out of the race. God will not drop you from the race. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That raises the question. Does everyone who thinks they have the Holy Spirit, do they have the Holy Spirit? Only if they're born again. Only if they're born again. Let's go back and chase the scriptures. Let's go start with Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Did the New Testament, is that where the Holy Spirit started? Nope. Nope. From eternity past to eternity future. We have a song we sing that includes that concept. What is it? Min ha olam, vat ha olam. Means from eternity past into eternity future. Psalm 51, verse 11. David is crying out to God after Nathan the prophet has explained to him his sin with Bathsheba. It blows our minds today to think that the prophet had to explain it to David that what David did was wrong. But if you remember, Nathan came to him and gave him an example of a man who had 99 sheep, goes and takes one from a man who has only one. What should be done to the man who took the sheep? And David says, put him to death. And Nathan says, I'm talking about you. And then David was cut to the heart, and he's crying out to God this way. We'll start in verse 10 for context. Create in me a clean heart, O God. 
What's David doing? Repenting. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David had the Holy Spirit of God. That's how David was able to be a prophet. And when David sinned, and he realized that he was just brokenhearted. Isaiah 63 Isaiah 63, verses 9 to 13. Referring to the Lord, it ends in verse 8 saying, So he became their Savior. Verse 9 says, In all their affliction, he was afflicted. When you and I have to suffer, God suffers too. And the angel of his presence saved them. He delivered them. He delivered them from the afflictions they were in. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he bore them and carried them all the days of old, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. How did they grieve his Holy Spirit? They rebelled against God. They turned to pagan idols. They turned to sexual immorality. They turned to the slaughter of the innocent children. And God's Holy Spirit was grieved. So he turned himself against them as an enemy. And he fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old. Moses and his people saying... Where is he who brought us out of the sea, that's the Red Sea, with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them? Who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make for himself an eternal name. Who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble. But look at the end of verse 11. Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them? Hmm. Matthew chapter 1. So why was David afraid that God might take his Holy Spirit away? He took it away from Saul because Saul what? Rebelled against God. He had also committed two sins that there was no sacrifice for. That's true. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that would put terror in your heart. It would. The only thing you could do for an intentional sin like that is what? Plead for mercy. Repent and plead for mercy. Yeah. Matthew 1.18. Now the birth of Yeshua the Messiah was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So who was Messiah's father? The Holy Spirit. And God. 
because they're one and the same. Heard some interesting teachings this week about how God, the Holy Spirit, and Messiah are three separate individuals who don't get along. Yeah, they start on the fire arguing. Yeah. What craziness is this? Matthew 12. Matthew 12. Verse 32. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, referring to Messiah himself, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, God bless you, it will not be forgiven him, God bless you, either in this age or in the age to come. This is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that we keep hearing about. That's the unpardonable sin. And what was it? Messiah performed a great miracle. And the scribes and Pharisees said, you did that by the spirit of Beelzebub. They attributed the Holy Spirit to Satan. And Messiah said, that won't be forgiven. Wayne? Yes, ma'am. In, in this age, meaning Messiah would go around and forgive people of their sins, he's not going to forgive this one. And come the day of the Lord on Judgment Day, it won't be forgiven then either. Okay. So these people are eternally lost. Have any of you done this? No, you have not. My recommendation is don't. Okay. John chapter 7. I, I do literally recommend that you keep a list of bad things. Never do these. And that's one of them. John chapter 7, verse 39. Referring to the living waters that would flow out of those who believe in Messiah. It says, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. Who would receive it? Those who believe in him. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Yeshua was not yet glorified. What does this do to all those theologians who say Messiah is not the only way to God? There are many ways. In John 14, 6, Messiah said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. But this verse, John 7, 39, says, To whom is the Holy Spirit given? whom those believing in him would receive. John 14, 26. I know you thought I was going to say John 14, 6. But since I quoted it and everybody said, I know that one, we'll just go on to verse 26. But the helper. What helper? I guess we have to back up for a moment to verse 15. John 14, 15. How many of you can quote it backwards? Standing on one foot. If you love me, comma, keep my commandments, and. That word and means there is a consequence. There is a benefit. There is a blessing that flows. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you, what's that word? Forever. The spirit of truth, that's the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. 
And then in verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. What does it mean, the Father will send the Holy Spirit in my name? They're all the same. It's confusing. <laughs> it is a little confusing. What he's trying to say is, if you truly believe in me, then you're asking for it in my name, and God will grant it. Does God hear the prayers of those who turn their ear away from hearing the Torah? What's that? Just the one for repentance. The repentant ones. And I, okay, I'm just going to leave that one. And go on to Acts 1 8. Acts 1 8. Because if it's a prayer of repentance, that means you're no longer turning your way the ear from hearing the Torah. Acts 1 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. When did the Holy Spirit come upon the apostles? In Acts chapter 2 at Shavuot or Pentecost, right? But Yeshua had breathed all them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Yeah, but they hadn't received it yet. But, that was when, but that's when he said he's with you. Yeah. That, that was the point at which the Holy Spirit was literally accompanying them as they went out and in. But it not yet in them. It wasn't in them yet. Right. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Why did they have to wait until Shavuot for the Holy Spirit to come? Because it's an appointed time. God does all things at the time appointed. Isn't that interesting? It does for me. For those of you who couldn't hear him, he said, doesn't that blow the doctrine of eminence away? And I said, it does for me. You guys know what the doctrine of eminence is. That the Lord could return with the rapture resurrection at any moment of any day at any time. It could have been a thousand years ago. It could have been 1,500 years ago. It could be tonight. The people who teach that, when you say, what about the feasts and festivals of Leviticus 23, say, those are not relevant to the church. To which I go, Messiah's death, burial, and resurrection is not relevant. The coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell the believers is not relevant to the church. Church pretty much acts like that. Yeah, it doesn't make it true. Acts chapter 2. They also teach dispensationalism too. But the word dispensation does appear in the Bible. <laughs> so we should make a doctrine around it. Okay, never mind that. Acts chapter 2, verse 30 something, 38. Is this consistent with or inconsistent with what Messiah said in John chapter 14? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Yeshua the Messiah for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
In John 14, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments and. Here it says, repent and. Is there a difference between repenting and keeping my commandments? The answer to that is no. That's what it means to repent, is to turn away from the sin and then to follow and keep and observe God's commandments. You might say repent is the first step. I would say repentance is the first step. And then the keeping the commandments is the continuation of the repentance. Keeping the commandments is the evidence that the repentance was real, isn't it? Yeah. Acts chapter 4. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Back in those days, to speak the word of God with boldness could get you put to death. But being filled with the Holy Spirit, they were willing to die if that's what it took. Hmm. That challenge may come to us one of these days. Acts chapter 5, verse 32. Acts chapter 5, verse 32. I want you to see a pattern that's developing. And we are his witnesses. Who is the his? Of Messiah. To these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit. Whom God has given to those who want. Obey him. If we claim to be saved. But we walk in sin. And claim that the commandments are not to be followed. Is the Holy Spirit in us? Hmm. Let's keep tracing. Let's go to Acts chapter 7. Verse 51. Remember the new covenant is the Torah, the commandments of God being written upon our hearts and minds. And it's the Holy Spirit that helps us to understand and obey. That's what we get from Acts chapter 7, verse 51, which says, You stiff-necked. Stiff-necked refers to a horse. When you've got a bit in the horse's mouth and you pull one way or the other, the horse is supposed to turn. A stiff-necked horse keeps going straight, and it doesn't matter how hard you pull. I had a horse that way. He had a sense of humor. He liked to run through trees with low branches while I was trying to ride him. He thought that was a hoot. He's now glue, I think. But however, no, not really. Not really, no. But you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Uncircumcised in heart is the same as stiff-necked. You won't follow God's commandments. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Being stiff-necked, refusing to hear the commandments of God, he says, is the same as resisting the Holy Spirit. Is that consistent with what we've read so far? If you love me, keep my commandments and repent 
and you stiff-necked, you're resisting the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants us to follow the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. So when we turn away and say, no, we're not supposed to do that. That's not for us. Paul says, you're resisting the Holy Spirit. As do the other prophets. Hmm. Acts chapter 10. Verses 44 to 47. This addresses the question, are we only talking to Jewish people? Acts chapter 10, beginning verse 44. Oh, wait a minute. I see a red one out there. Sorry. What was the reference for Acts chapter 7? That was Acts chapter 7, verse 51. Okay, we are in Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. A couple points here. One, the Holy Spirit's not just for Jews. It's for all people. All those who've been saved by faith. And second, they received the Holy Spirit before they were baptized. You notice that? Because there's those out there that say baptism is what saves. And here the Holy Spirit was indwelling them before they were baptized. Acts 28. Messiah used to say, you heard it said, but I tell you it's written. Acts 28, verse 25. So when they did not agree amongst themselves, talking about the Jewish leaders to whom Paul had preached in prison, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers. saying, go to this people and say, hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. Key point here, how did God speak to the prophets <coughs> through the Holy Spirit? And one thing that the Holy Spirit spoke through Isaiah was 
that if they will not see and if they will not hear, then they will not turn and they will not be healed. So let's not be stiff-necked. Let's not be uncircumcised of heart. Yes, ma'am. Where does it say in the scriptures that the, the Holy Spirit, all if it was the Holy Spirit, uh, spoke to each individual to be able to write down what we have today as known as our scriptures? You know, it said that, that God spoke to those men to be able to write the scriptures that we have today. I don't know if it was through the Holy Spirit, but, but there was a scripture. I know there's a scripture out there. I just can't remember where it is. I don't remember one that reads exactly like that. Um, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says that every scripture is God-breathed. It's the onuptas. That's the closest I can think to those words. Okay, on to, on to Romans 14. Romans 14 has nothing to do with eating pigs or worshiping on Sundays. It has to do with a twice-a-week partial fast commanded by the Pharisees. But there's a particular verse, verse 17, that is appropriate to our topic here. So we'll start in 16 to start this sentence. It says, therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness, peace, and joy come through the Holy Spirit. When we obey the Holy Spirit, when we stop being stiff-necked, we circumcise our hearts, we obey God, we walk in righteousness, those things are pleasing to the Holy Spirit. What does it mean, do not let your good be spoken of as evil? Don't destroy another brother and Messiah because they don't do everything the way you do. If they're breaking the commandments of God, that's different. But not everybody understands everything the same way. First, yes, Daniel. You think Rachel's looking for 2 Peter chapter 1. Let's go look at it. 2 Peter 1. Verses 20 and 21. Verses 20 and 21. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Knowing this first, Thank you. that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Daniel. Okay, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. We've read all the scriptures that say what it takes to have the Holy Spirit within you. And now we look at the topic from a little different angle. What does it mean to you if the Holy Spirit lives within you? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 comes after a long litany of sins that Paul says, if you're committing these, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't, don't mislead yourself. 
So we'll start in 17 to give us context for 19. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. What does it mean that he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him? Can we have a different path? Can we walk a different way? Answer is no. If the Holy Spirit guides us, we will walk in the way of the Lord. If we're not walking in the way of the Lord, then either we don't have the Holy Spirit or we're grieving the Holy Spirit and we need to stop it. Isn't that the same language that God uses about man leaving his parents cleaving to his wife, they become one. They become one flesh, yeah. You are one spirit. One spirit. God. And that means you are to do what pleases God. Correct. Just like the husbands do what pleases the wife and vice versa. So it's, you just can't violate that and think that you're in a covenant relationship. You just broke it. That's right. Absolutely right. Ephesians 1. Paul's not done talking about this yet. Ephesians 1. When he talks about a topic to all the churches that he goes to, what does that tell you? It's, it's fundamental. It's very important. Ephesians 1.13. In him you also trusted. In whom? Yeshua. Yeshua. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed... You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which came first hearing, then believing, then sealing. Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. It's a concept that I've heard described as here now, but not yet. Are we in the fullness of God's kingdom? Not yet. But we have the Holy Spirit within us. We have the promise. We have a foretaste. In Ephesians 4.20. Ephesians 4, verse 20. But you have not so learned Messiah. What does that mean? If you've not, but you have not so learned Messiah. We got to back up to verse 17, huh? 
This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the perverseness of their mind. That is, Messiah didn't teach you to walk that way. Someone needs to tell Andy that. Yeah, yeah, I will let that lie, and we'll go on back to Romans, but I agree with you, brother. Romans chapter 5, there go my notes all over, that's okay, who needs notes? Verse 6, for when we were still without strength, in due time, Messiah died for the ungodly. It's interesting how they translated that, in due time. Do you know what those words actually mean? At the appointed time. Was there an appointed time for Messiah to die? Let's go back to Leviticus chapter 23. There was absolutely an appointed time. I would not want to suggest that they didn't use the words appointed time because they didn't want us looking back to Leviticus chapter 23. They hid it in plain sight. Leviticus 23, verses 4 to 14. 1,500 years before Messiah was crucified, it told us the appointed time. Verse 4 says, these are the feasts of the Lord. But what is that word feast really? These are the appointed times, the Moedim. M-O apostrophe, E-D-I-M, Moedim. Holy convocations. Holy means set apart to the Lord. Michra. A convocation is an assembly together to rehearse. Rehearse what? The comings of the Lord. Which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. Why is God so picky that we do these precisely at the appointed times? That's how he works. The pattern is very important. If you move things, oh, I, let's say just for instance to Good Friday and Easter Sunday morning, what happens to the pattern? Disappears. Disappears. It becomes disassociated from the appointed times. And they cease to teach. What happens if you take Shabbat and move it from the seventh day to the first day? Then it teaches absolutely nothing about the coming day of the Lord, the Messianic kingdom. Teaches you nothing about God. And when you lose those building blocks, then you tend to shy away from end times prophecy because you don't have an, a basis on which to understand it. The foundation has been destroyed. The foundation has been destroyed. So verse 5. On the 14th day of the first month at twilight. It's not twilight. The Hebrew is Bain Aravim. The Aravim goes from noon till 6 p.m. Bain means between. So halfway between noon and 6 p.m. is 3 p.m. What time did Messiah die? 3 p.m. It is the Lord's Passover. It's not the Jewish Passover. It's not even Israel's Passover. It's the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month, that's just three hours later, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. Somebody wrote me an email this past week or so and said, do we have to eat unleavened bread every day? Or is it that if we eat bread, it has to be unleavened? The answer is, it's the latter. 
There's not a command to eat unleavened bread for seven days. The commandment is don't eat leavened bread for the seven days. Which I thought was a good question. I never really thought about it. On the first day, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. That we call then a high Sabbath. What if it doesn't fall on a Saturday? It's still a Sabbath. What if it does fall on a Saturday? It's a really Sabbathy Sabbath. But you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. That offering represents our Messiah Yeshua. The seventh day, that is of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. That's why last Friday we didn't go to work. Those of us who still do that. By the way, retirement's wonderful in case you were wondering. Okay. Verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, we're not done yet. Speak to the children of Israel and say that when you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest, you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. A sheaf, not a stalk. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 calls Messiah the first fruits of the resurrection. Was he raised from the grave by himself or were there others raised with him? In Matthew 27, there were others raised with him. Together they make up a sheaf. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. That's why the Feast of First Fruits will always be on the first day of the week that we call Sunday. Notice Passover is the 14th. The first day of unleavened bread is the 15th. First Fruits is the day after the Sabbath. In Judaism today, they say First Fruits is the 17th day of the first month. That God said Passover is the 14th, first day of unleavened bread is the 15th, and then he couldn't remember what came after 15, so he just said the day after the Sabbath. Yeah, I don't think so. And you shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf of male lamb of the first year. The last part of verse 14, though, ends the Passover slash unleavened bread season. It should be a statue forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. So was there an appointed time for Messiah to die? There was. And he died on the appointed day and the appointed hour. What if God had specified a very minute? Would have been it, but nobody had a watch. So it would have been tough. Okay. Let's go back to Romans chapter 5. We're up to verses 7 and 8, which what go together. The, uh, the week of unleavened bread, besides, you know, the sinlessness, is it, is, are there some other underpinnings? Absolutely. The seven days of unleavened bread. The unleavened bread is Messiah. Those seven days represent the 7,000 years from creation to the new heavens and new earth. Messiah has always been unleavened. So just like the... Um, Sukkot has the seven days. Just like. Messiah has been the lamb slain from the what? Foundation of the world. He is that saving lamb from the beginning to the end. There is no other bread of life. It's always he. Verses 7 and 8. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates 
his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Messiah died for us. The most important thing to gather from verses 7 and 8 is what love is. Unfortunately, we live in a Western society that has defined terms its own way. And in English, love is an emotion. It's that emotion one feels toward one's loved ones, their, their wives, their children, that feeling of warmth and appreciation. That's not what love is in biblical Hebrew. It's an action verb. Love is how do we treat people? How do we treat God? When it says in the scripture that God loved Jacob, but he hated Esau, people think, how could he hate Esau? I didn't even know Esau. But it means God set Jacob above Esau. He gave him the firstborn blessing, not Esau. So this says God demonstrates his love toward us, and here's what he did to demonstrate it. What did he do? While we were yet sinners, Messiah died for us. Go to John 14, 15. I know you guys don't really need to turn there. You know it by heart. This is what Messiah means by, if you love me, keep my commandments. To love God is not just to say, oh, oh I have such lofty feelings for you. I feel so warm and tingly when you come into my presence. If you love God, you will do what he asks of you. You will demonstrate your love to him by being obedient to his commandments. And then, of course, people go, well, that doesn't mean God's commandments. Really? Let's go back to verse 10. What's that? Of John 14. That was John 14, 15 we were just looking at. Now we're going back to verse 10 of the same chapter. Oh, we're talking about verses 7 and 8 of Romans 5. We're still talking about 7 and 8, not verse 9. That's okay. I'm so sorry. I should draw a better roadmap. Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. And then in that same chapter, John 14, verses 23 and 24, Yeshua answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Did Messiah come to set aside the law and establish due commandments? He said himself he did not. 1 John 5 was written after John and helps to clarify and respond to those who say that didn't mean keep God's commandments. Yeah, it does. Verses 2 and 3. 
By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. When it says this is the love of God means this is how you show love to God. That we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. I know, I know. People tell me that going to church on Sunday is a breeze, but oh, if I have to keep Shabbat, it's so burdensome. Well, I don't believe it. I have a question out there. Who's it from? Hello? Susie. Susie. Hey, uh, Susie. I wondered, is there a parallel? Hi there. Hi. And hi to my family there. <laughs> um, is there a parallel that we can draw that his word is law? I'm sorry. How do we know that? Sorry. That we, we that we keep his commandments. That yeah, his is com there a parallel that we can draw that his word that his word is law? That his word is law. Is there a, is there a scripture that says his word is the law? Psalm 19. Let's go look at Psalm 119. Or did you want Psalm 19? Well, you wanted Psalm 19. We'll go there first. But it uses many different words for the law. So in Psalm 19, we'll start in verse 7 where he uses many different words to convey the same thing. It's Hebrew parallelism, which is Hebrew poetry. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect. That's tamim, that you keep hearing that word, without spot or blemish. Converting the soul. It's not converting, it's restoring the soul, right? Mm -hmm. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So he uses all those different words. But now let's go to Psalm 119. In Psalm 119, verse 1, it uses the way and the law. Verse 2 uses his testimonies. Verse 3 uses his ways. Verse 4 is precepts. Verse 5 is statutes. Verse 6 is commandments. These are all this, meaning the same thing. They're all just different ways of referring to God's word. Um, Verse 11, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. So your word I have hidden in my heart, referring to the commandments. Verse 15, I'll meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I'll delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. So again, it uses word and statutes and precepts interchangeably. 
Verse 17, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. There your word and your law are parallel. They mean the same thing. I think drawing those parallels is so valuable because I, I know so many of us, or me in particular, when we were in the church, we felt like we were keeping his word, but we had no understanding that the parallel is referring to word is law, his instructions, yeah. more so than law, I guess, you know. Yep, yep, I agree with you. All the way through Psalm 119, it keeps just using the same parallelisms over and over again to just reinforce it. And verse 126 is one that always catches my eye. I always have to stop there when I'm reading through Psalm 119. It says, It is time for you to act, O Lord, for they have regarded your law as void. Yeah, so when they stop thinking that your law is important, then it's time to act. But if we ever said your word is void, that would that would cause some ruffles. Yeah. Psalm 160, the entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. So Psalm 119, to me, is just so very important. And I know I've told you how much it broke my heart to hear a preacher that I like to listen to his prophecy updates teach Psalm 119. I only listen to verse 1. Which says, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. And he said, what this verse means is how dare you come to church on Sunday morning without bringing your Bible with you. Talk about missing the point. However, back to our point, verses 7 and 8, continuing the commentary in verses 7 and 8 of Romans 5. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6. You all know Deuteronomy 6, 4. That's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But we came to see verse 5, which is the Ve'ahavta. If you remember that song that we sing, Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elohecha. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Why? Because if you do that, you should never forget the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. 6, 4. 6, 4, 7, 9. Yeah, it was 6-5, actually. 6-4 is the Shema. 6-5 is the Ve'ahavta. Which means, and you shall love. But Deuteronomy 7-9 is next. 
Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy. Look at that word mercy. For a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. The word love and keep are both what kind of words? Participles, continuing action. And he repays those who hate him to their face. Verse 11, therefore you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments. So how in verse 10 does God describe and decide who hates him? Whether they love him and keep his commandments or not. Do you keep the commandments of God? Or do you not? Because it's Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, that Messiah quotes from in Matthew 4, 4, when he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's Deuteronomy 8, 3. The same chapter then in verse 11 says, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. If you do not keep the commandments of God, he says you have forgotten him. And I know people today will say, No, that's not true. I love him with my whole heart. I'm just not going to follow his commandments. Well, come judgment day, who gets to be the judge? And what standard do they judge by? Deuteronomy 11.1. 1. We're all talking about how... God showed his love by sending his only begotten son to die for us. How do we show love to God? What does he ask of us? Deuteronomy 11.1 1. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments always. What does that word always mean? All of the days. Forever. Without fail. Deuteronomy 11 verse 13. What's that? It means in this life and in the next. Are we going to follow commandments in eternity? We are. So if you don't like keeping Shabbat now, you're not going to like heaven. Hmm. Deuteronomy 11.13, and it shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and serve him with, your, with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain. The early rain and the latter rain is also used as a symbol of what? And Messiah's first and second coming and of the Holy Spirit, both of those things. Promise to whom? Those who love him enough to be obedient. Earnestly obey. Earnestly. Deuteronomy 11.22. 
For if you carefully keep, okay, we've seen earnestly, diligently, now it's carefully. For if you carefully keep all these commandments I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and all fast to him. Wait a minute. That's ridiculous. Let's say to love the Lord your God and to walk in some of his ways. Isn't that okay? No, it's not. Well, let's go to Matthew then. Matthew 22. Verse 37. When they ask Messiah, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law, Yeshua said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. People go, see, 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 that's all I have to do is just love. And what does that mean? If you love the Lord, you will keep his commandments, obey him. This is the first and great commandment. Second is like you, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This is a very important teaching. One that gets overlooked too often. I hear a multitude of preachers say when it refers to the commandments in the Bible, it only means the Ten Commandments. You shall love your neighbor as yourself is which of the Ten Commandments? It's not. It's in Leviticus 19.18. And Messiah cites it as the second greatest commandment in the Torah. In the law. Yeah. Right. And the Vayahot is not in there either. It's in Deuteronomy 6 5. Yeah. Hmm. They conveniently forget about the, uh, the one, one commandment out of the ten. Yeah. yeah. I wish they just forgot about it. But I've told you, honestly, in the Baptist church I attended in Prattville many years ago. They had a sign, must have been 30 feet high, with the Ten Commandments on it. Number four was, thou shalt go to church on Sunday. They didn't forget about it. They changed it. I'd rather they just forgot it. 1 Corinthians 2.9. 1 Corinthians 2.9. Uh-oh, I see five red numbers out there. Let's see. Okay, I think Rachel answered all those questions. Okay, 1 Corinthians 2.9. Is that what I said? I think so. 1 Corinthians 2.9. But it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered in the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those, what? Who love him. The new Jerusalem is prepared for those who love him. How do we show God we love him? We keep his commandments. Does that mean we're saved by keeping commandments? No. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 9. One of my favorite books. One of my favorite out of the 66. All favorites. 
Daniel 9. Hello, Amos. Are you being good for your mommy? Yeah. Okay. I'll ask her later. Okay. Daniel 9, 4. Daniel 9.4. We read these same words in many places throughout the scripture. And I pray to the Lord my God and make confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. We can go all the way back to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Which is where all these sources cite back to. God never promised mercy to those who renounced him and turned away from his commandments. It all goes back to Exodus chapter 20 verse 6. But showing mercy to thousands, that's thousands of generations as the later quotes tell us. To those who love me and keep my commandments as some wise woman said just before service started boy time is getting short we need people to start listening back to Romans 5 verse 9 let's talk about wrath much more than having now been justified by his blood what's the word justified mean saved washed clean by faith in messiah his blood washes away our sins it says we shall be saved from wrath through him saved from what wrath when's god's wrath poured out in the tribulation period does it say we shall be saved through wrath? It says we shall be saved from wrath. Let's go to Matthew 3, 7. Matthew 3, 7. Matthew 3, 7. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, his baptism was a baptism of what? What's that key word? Repentance. He said to them, brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Repentance was equated by John to fleeing from the wrath to come. When you repent and come to God in faith, accepting Messiah's death in your place, you are fleeing from the wrath to come. There are people who mock us and say, you're just trying to escape the tribulation period. To which I go, and? <laughs> yes, as a matter of fact, I would like to avoid the tribulation period. Thank you. It's not going to be a very nice time. Go to John 3.
Have you noticed so many of the experts say that the worldwide famine should start in October, which is just after the Feast of Trumpets? Right after the harvest. <laughs> mm -hmm. John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has faith in, loves, has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So put out two hands. In one hand there's everlasting life, and in the other there's the wrath of God. Which determines which hand is your hand? Your faith. Faith brings love, brings obedience, brings blessing, brings glory. Romans 1.18. Romans 1.18 tells us against whom the wrath of God will be poured out. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What's another term for unrighteousness? Lawlessness. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They don't want people to know God's commandments because they don't want people to live in them. They want to walk in ungodliness. And God says that his wrath will be revealed from heaven against all who live lives of ungodliness and unrighteousness. Do we really need more to persuade us? Hello there. Romans chapter 2. Verses 5 to 8. I know we read these earlier, but it's got the word wrath in it. And it talks about when that wrath gets poured out and why. Romans 2, starting in verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good. What's another term for doing good? Obeying the commandments. Seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. God keeps bringing it down to two hands, either or, A or B, one or the other. Obedience or unrighteousness. The truth, unrighteousness. If God provides the truth, what's the source of the unrighteousness? Satan, Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, right? What has Satan been trying from the Garden of Eden to get people to do? 
to turn away from following God's commandments. Wasn't that it? From the very beginning. Did God really say? So if God said keep the Sabbath, Satan comes back and says at the council of Laodicea, don't keep the Sabbath. Do Sunday instead. Have you read the canon, canon 29 of the council of Laodicea? What, what verse does, do they cite? None. What argument do they give? Don't be like those Jews. Don't be a Judaizer. You know, it hasn't been long since I've been accused of being a Judaizer and legalism, being a legalism. Where are either of those terms in the Bible? The answer is nowhere. They're theological terms from doctrine. Hmm. What's our time? Plenty of time. Lots of time. Yeah, when you don't have a biblical basis for an argument. Ephesians 5, 6. Ephesians 5, 6. Yeah. I used to teach trial advocacy. And one of the things you want to teach your young attorneys to do is see if you can get the other attorney angry. Because an argument made in anger usually has no substance to it. Ephesians 5, 6. That's when personal attacks start. Ephesians 5, 6. Which begins, verse five, chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore be imitators of God. So in addition to 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Imitate me as I also imitate Messiah. In 1 John 2, verse 6, you ought to walk as Messiah walked. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. But in verse 6, it says, let no one deceive you with empty words. In other words, there are false teachers that will try and get you to walk in sin, trying to persuade you that this pleases God. And no, don't call out any names. Okay. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the first of which was fornication, in verse 3, the second is all uncleanness. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So the wrath of God, does it come out upon God's children or upon the sons of disobedience? Therefore, do not be partakers with them. So what kind of things? Starting in verse 3. Put on your bad list. Fornication. All uncleanness. Covetousness. Filthiness. Foolish talking. Coarse jesting. No fornicator, no unclean person, no covetous man who's an idolater is in inheritance in the kingdom of Messiah and God. So my point here is the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. What is another term for the sons of disobedience? The sons of perdition. The sons of Satan. Colossians 3.6 Colossians 3 is all about put on the new man. 
Let your mind be like the mind of Messiah set on things above. But in verse 6 it says, Because of these things, again, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, etc. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. That sounds just like Ephesians 5, 6. Well, it should, because it was written by the same author. What do you think Paul's trying to get across to him? I always heard growing up, Paul says, stop keeping God's commandments. He doesn't want you to do that anymore. Do you see that here at all? 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Yeshua, who delivers us from what? The wrath to come. Delivers us from the wrath to come. Yep, er, Susie. First Thessalonians 5 9. And you guys know we're not done until we hit Revelation, right? Okay, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah who died for us. That whether we wake or sleep, he's talking to the rapture and resurrection, we should live together with him. God did not appoint us to what? Wrath. So us does not include these sons of disobedience. Mm -hmm. Revelation 6. Verses 16 to 17. And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That's the Lamb who saves us from the wrath. That is sending the wrath. For the great day of his wrath has come and who's able to stand. So the same Lamb of God who protects us and delivers us from the wrath to come is the one who delivers the wrath to come. Makes me think of Exodus chapter 12. If you watch the movie The Ten Commandments, there's an angel who brings death through the towns. What does Exodus 12 say? God says, I myself, not an angel. So the same God who covered over the houses with the blood and the doorposts and lintel was the ones who brought was the one who brought the pestilence. He did a good job of protecting the houses with the blood on them from himself, didn't he? Revelation eleven. Somebody's gonna say, you skipped Revelation three. Yeah I did, because y'all know Revelation three, right? Eck out of, not through. Revelation eleven eighteen. Unless somebody says no, I don't know that one. Revelation eleven eighteen. 
The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead that you should be judged. And that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints. And those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. So these verses in Revelation 6 and Revelation 11 tell us that the wrath of God is poured out during the tribulation period. Who's not here during the tribulation period? Those were taken in the rapture and resurrection. Revelation 14, 19. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Wait a minute. I thought it was the wrath of the lamb. The lamb is God. Okay. You talked me into it. Revelation 3. You guys are so persuasive. What does it say? That I will keep you, what? From the wrath to come. Verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I'll also keep you from the hour of trial. That word from is what? Ek. What does ek mean? Out of, not through. Back to Romans, chapter 5. That was verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Amos. Be nice to your mama. Show her you love her. Verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Ephesians 1, verses 7 to 14. Ephesians 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Ephesians 1, 7 to 14. Are we ready? Thumbs up? Okay. In him, him who? Yeshua. We have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times that is in the day of the Lord. 
he might gather together in one all things in Messiah, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Messiah should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Where would we have been without the blood of Messiah? Ephesians 2.13 But now in Messiah Yeshua, you who once were far off, that is the Gentile, have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. When he shed his precious blood, it brought us near. It made us partakers of the covenants, made us participants in the commonwealth. Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14. I know time's running short. Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. If Messiah had not died, then all our repentance in the world could not undo the sins we have done in the past. Only through his shed blood could those sins be paid for. Hebrews 9, he is our high priest. Hebrews 9. Verses 11 to 15. Hebrews 9, 11 to 15. The Messiah came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he's the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. That is of eternal life, life in the new Jerusalem. And lastly, Hebrews 7, verse 25. Hebrews 7. Verse 25, and then we'll stop. Therefore, he also is able to save us to the uttermost. 
those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So even though once we've been saved, we may slip and commit a sin, when we repent and ask God to forgive us in Messiah's precious name, he is just to do that. And I've run out of time. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Romans chapter 5, verse 11.